chapter 2. 1861. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow lost his first wife in a heartbreaking miscarriage many years before. He had been remarried to Frances Appleton for 18 years now. And winning her affection had taken him years in and of itself. Five years for her to finally accept his proposal. And their 18-year marriage is the happiest time of his life. He was 54. He felt drowsy and he settled down for a short nap. Frances, in the picture here with her two little boys, also had some other children. She was with the children, preserving some baby, baby memories near an open window, sealing a lock of her little daughter's pearls in a pack of an envelope using some hot sealing wax. It was never known whether a spark from the match or the sealing wax was the cause, but suddenly a spark caught onto her dress. And her dress caught fire and she was engulfed and flames rapidly traveled up Francis's muslin hoop dress and she ran into the study where Longfellow was napping and cried, Henry! And he woke up and he managed to put the fire out, burning himself severely in the process. He carried her up to their second floor bedroom and laid her on the slave bed there. She died there the next day from her burns. He was too badly burned and too sedated to even go to her funeral. He could never bring himself to speak to his children about their mother's death. He wrote, How I am alive after what my eyes have seen, I know not. <clears throat> the death marked a turning point in Longfellow's life. His physical appearance changed dramatically. He began growing his beard because the burns disfigured his face so much and he couldn't even shave. Mentally, he sank into depression. 1861. Christmas Day, 1862. He'd record in his journal, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. And later he would be still mourning Francis Lost when he wrote The Cross of Snow poetry. In the long sleepless watches of the night, a gentle face, the face of one long dead, looks at me from the wall where round its head the night lamp casts a halo of pale light. Here in this room she died in soul more white. Never through martyrdom of fire was led to its repose. Nor can in books be read the legend of a life more than a There is a mountain in the distant west that sun defined in its deep ravines displays a cross of snow upon its side. Such is the cross I wear upon my breast. These eighteen years... Through all the changing scenes and seasons, changeless since the day she died. 1863. Two years after Francis died, Longfellow suffered another war. Longfellow was a staunch abolitionist, and he, like the entire country, was troubled, however, by the Civil War. His son Charlie, in March of 1863, had decided that, regardless of his father's wishes, he would join the fight. And so he ran off to Washington to enlist in the 1st Massachusetts Artillery. A friend posted a letter for him after he left. Dear Papa, you know for how long a time I've been wanting to go to the war? I've tried hard to resist the temptation of going without your permission. 
but I cannot any longer. I feel it is my first duty to do what I can for my country, and I willingly lay down my life for it, if it would be of any good God. Any good. God bless you all. Yours affectionately, Charlie. Charlie's commanding officer soon discovered the boy's influential family ties. Wadsworth Longfellow had quite a reputation at this time. Some of you know he was a professor at Bowdoin for some time and lived in Brunswick. He promoted Charlie to lieutenant. Charlie believed his aunt had probably helped got the, get the commission for him. But Longfellow feared for his son's future. In June of 1863, Charlie came down with a fever. Longfellow went to Washington and he brought him back to spend summer on leave at the family cottage in Massachusetts. Though committed to the fight, that romance of war was stripped away for Charlie in the coming months of battles after he returned back to battle. In one letter he describes seeing a fellow soldier lose his leg and other close calls. And he wrote, They may talk about the gaiety of the soldier's life, but it strikes me as pretty earnest work when shells are ripping and tearing your men to pieces. In November, Charlie had his own bout in war. At New Hope, Virginia, his unit was engaged in a battle and he was shot. And the bullet went through him from back to shoulder, just nicking his spine. Again, Longfellow had to travel to Washington to get his son from the hospital. They arrived back at their Cambridge home on December 8th, and a grim Longfellow set about the months-long process of trying to nurse his son back to the house. I'll finish the story at the end of the sermon. With death, darkness, sin, suffering, bleakness. What is a passage like Matthew chapter 2 about another evil king doing evil and slaughtering infant sons have to do with both? I wondered too, and when I studied verses 17 through 18, that Matthew quotes from Jeremiah, the light blazed through the darkness to give eternal hope. This is a fiery time of affliction and testing for many in our church. Perhaps some sitting here, perhaps some at home this morning. Some of you have walked through the hardest times of your life. Some of you may in the next year walk through the hardest times in your life. Sickness, depression, terminal illnesses, loved ones gone, relationships of many years broken down, betrayals, dry souls. When I think back on this year, it's been a very good and a very difficult year for me. Saying goodbye to beloved people, moving on. Remember earlier in the year, comforting a young man who discovered his girlfriend's body hanging in a greenhouse because of what he had done. Difficult counseling cases, broken marriages, grief, sending saints home, growing pains in our own growing up biblical family. It has been crazy this year. And I'm kind of emotionally exhausted, if I'm honest. I'm not depressed, I'm not discouraged, I'm not burned out, I'm not quitting, I'm not mad, just weary on many levels. And it's Christmas. Christmas. Greenery, lights, balsam smells, some of the more lighthearted stuff of Christmas, Rudolph the Reindeer, Santa Claus, if you're not too angry about him, Christmas carols, remembering to get so-and-so a present. Peppermint candy canes and those gross fruity ones. Programs, parties, 
fun, silly Yankee swaps. And if you're like me, you see that and some of the lightheartedness of it. And maybe you wonder if God will really conquer and what he's going to do. And maybe you wonder if Christmas isn't just a sweet, sentimental season where we just kind of park our brains and escape. And if it's relevant. And maybe you doubt how relevant the incarnation of God the Son really is. What might that look like? Maybe you wonder about uh, uh, the incarnation because perhaps you haven't thought about that and been honest and serious about that raw, bloody, evil undercurrent in Christ's birth conquering that level raging, godless world. Perhaps you're suffering and you don't think Christmas has any relevancy to that. It might seem insufficient to handle that the deep hurt that might be going on in your heart or soul, so Christmas is just a, it's a fantasy escape with good memories, and you can push aside the hurts. Or maybe you want to push back from Christmas because of the hardships of memories. We all know people who have a hard time during Christmas, and perhaps you aren't sure how to give hope from the incarnation story. Maybe that's a way that it shows itself to be wondering in your own heart if it's relevant. We haven't listened to the story of the Incarnation with real listening ears. But what we see here in Matthew chapter 2 is the truth that though there is a great evil, and the effects of the wages of, this, uh, of, the, uh, of the wages of sin is death, there is true conquering hope if you're willing to listen. Matthew wants you to listen. Which is why he says over and over in his gospel that the scriptures must be fulfilled. When he says that, he wants you to perk your ears up and see what scriptures and look back and wonder why and how this connects. And see, in Matthew's quotations from the Old Testament, as he comments on this tragedy in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew wants us to listen. And so that's what I ask you to do this morning, is listen. Last week we saw Emmanuel, God with us, is for sinners. Emmanuel is for sinners. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This week Matthew shows us Emmanuel, God with us, is for sufferers. Emmanuel is for sufferers. We saw last time in Matthew 1 with Joseph's story, where did Jesus come from? Who is he really? And is he worth following? Is he worth investing everything? The answer was yes. And this week, Matthew shows us that Emmanuel is for sufferers. But first, what happened in Bethlehem is so awful. There at the end of the story in Matthew 2, where does this come from? A king who wants to murder a threat to his kingdom. And so in doing so, he gets rid of everybody else just so he might, in that large group, take care of his problem. But I want you to see, first of all, this morning, there is an agenda of death since the world began. And when I use the term death, I'm using it as the scripture uses it. It uses it in three ways. It uses it, certainly, of physical death. It uses it in the end of eternal death, which is punishment in the lake of fire forever, and torment. And it uses it also in the sense of spiritual death. Death passed upon all men. And there is an agenda of death since the world began. Remember the rebellion led by the evil one. 
There's been death since the beginning in Genesis 3. There's been a rage that has been the status quo against the Son of God, Psalm 2 says. Children always seem to be caught up in the middle of that, actually. The pagans did this in the pagan day of sacrificing children in a rage against God. Israel followed that as they followed the pagan god of Moloch. The Herods of this world begin by hating the child Jesus, but they always end up, when you hate the child Jesus, you always end up hurting others as well. They always end up hurting and murdering children, our most vulnerable and innocent. You can see little effects of this today, shadows of this. 300 infants are slaughtered a year just in Augusta. I mean, 815 a day in the U.S. in the hands of medical professionals who promised to do the good of healing to the public as they took their oath. Two-thirds of the population of our whole state each year works in sees this kind of effects. If you went to India and you went to a brick factory in India, you would see children in your neighborhood with bruises and you would wonder where they came from. In our community, children go to school and their schoolmates wonder where that bruise came from and that child wonders why he's such an awful person that mom's boyfriend would want to hurt him. And you have the relative who's groomed the child they were supposed to be trusted with and violate them. This kind of thing that happens in Matthew chapter 2 is just an expression of the death and sin of our culture. It's no different today. This culture of death, Romans 8 pictures, like, like it, it sits on creation like a dump truck on its chest. And creation groans. There's an ache, a suffering that grinds away at us like rocks in our engine, like salt eating away at our souls. This Roman ache groaning here of what's passed on creation and sin. So there is an agenda of death since the world began, but secondly, there is a weeping since the world began out of this. There's a sorrow. Remember Eve. With travail, with pain, we bring forth children. Here in Matthew chapter 2, we're told that when Herod saw, verse 16, was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And Ramah was there a voice heard. Lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. From Bethlehem. Christmas. We celebrate certainly the belief. The true belief that the king of the universe has come into the world to wage peace and justice. To bring love and kindness to all, but we forget that the birth of Christ also released a malignant force 
The unbridled power of an empire, the jealous strength of a threatened monarch, meted out upon the most vulnerable of all people. Why was this baby such a threat? Threat? Is there an answer? Is there a hope in that weeping? The answer is this, that we'll see. This baby is such a threat because he is the conquering emperor of the galaxy whose feet will rest on the necks of the murderers. And so I want to transition our eyes to see hope here. We'll have to think and work through this. The third thing, truth, is this. With that agenda of death, and with the sorrow that accompanies it, I want you to know there is a promise and progress since the world began. Before the world began. It goes back to Genesis 3.15 as our first revelation of it. It goes to Abraham's promise, that God promised me to Abraham, that in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed, yes, even the Roman Empire, inherit its family. And there is embedded in this quote here, from Jeremiah, there is a hope for Rachel, who Jeremiah says will not be comforted, because her children are gone. There is a hope. The first mention of Bethlehem in scriptures in connection with the death of Jacob's favorite wife. Again, showing you how messed up the people in the Bible were, right? Rachel, in Genesis 35, 16-20. Rachel has a son, finally, through Jacob. His name is what? Joseph. And then later she has another son she gives birth to, who she calls Benoni, son of my sorrow. And she dies in that child. And Jeremiah gives this prophecy about 600 years before Matthew 2 happens. It grows out of the captivity of Jerusalem. Israel has gone down this dark slide. Some of the captives uh, in Babylon, from Babylon were taken to Ramah in Benjamin near Jerusalem. And this reminds Jeremiah of Jacob's sorrow when Rachel died and Jacob mourns. However, now... Instead of Jacob mourning, it's Rachel who is weeping. And she's representing here the mothers of Israel weeping as they saw their sons shackled, whipped, beaten, and driven to Babylon, going into captivity. It was like Rachel had said, I gave my life to bear a son in this land of Benjamin, and now his descendants are no more. More important than, than that here, this exile in Jeremiah 31, that Jeremiah pictures Rachel weeping, also implies a future hope. Rachel is weeping for her children, but I'd like you to turn to Jeremiah 31, please. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 15. Thus says the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they were not. Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping, and your eyes from tears, 
For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in your end, says the Lord, that your children will come again to their own border. If you scope down to verse 20, you see the heart of God for Israel, where he says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my battles and my feelings are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, says the Lord. And what will happen later on in the chapter is down in verse 31, where the Lord says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day, that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. A new covenant. And as Matthew reflects on these events here, these painful events of Jesus' persecuted childhood are going to be the anvil that the blacksmith of heaven would forge the fulfillment of his promises to his people, just as his cross would bring in, as Jesus says, in the upper room that night before he's betrayed. This blood is the new covenant. And Matthew is teaching in this passage that Jesus has begun the anticipated salvation for God's chosen people. Back in Genesis, when Rachel names her son, son of my sorrow, Jacob renames the son Benjamin, son of my right hand. Both of those names, son of my sorrow and son of my right hand, certainly correspond in many ways to things that are said about the Lord Jesus, don't they? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Acts 5, 31, Hebrews 1 says he's the son of God's right hand. He is now the son of God at God's right hand. And Jacob put up a pillar to mark Rachel's grave, which is near Bethlehem. Jacob saw Bethlehem as a place of death. But the birth of Jesus, even in the midst of infanticide by Herod, makes this a place of life. Because of his coming, there would be spiritual deliverance for Israel. And in the future, the establishment of David's throne and kingdom. Israel, son of my sorrow, would one day become the son of my right hand. Jeremiah is giving a promise in Jeremiah 31 to the nation that they would be restored again. And his promise has been given. But he's giving an even greater promise as well. That the nation would be regathered in the future and his kingdom established. His promise will be fulfilled as well. Very few people today, you go and visit Bethlehem, you really can't get in today. It's um, Ramallah and, and um, uh, the Palestinian section. But very few people today would think of Bethlehem as a, as, a, as a burial place. Of course, we think of it today as the birthplace of Jesus Christ. 
And rightly so. And because he died for us and rose again, we have a bright future before us. We will live forever with him in the, in the glorious city, the new Jerusalem, where death is no more and where tears never fall. But this Lord Jesus here in the story in Matthew 2, we see he's spared while others are slaughtered. He's spared as a baby, but he's not spared as an adult. In Revelation, he's the conquering king. Which tells us this. The good news, part of the good news here, is that Herod is due die. Crafty as he was, his craftiness couldn't save Herod from the effects of death and sin. Kings come and go. God's people, through his grace and mercy, endure they can endure because God has made this power possible through what has happened in Jesus. There's a well-known historian famous for his skepticism toward Christianity. And, and he listened to a, to a message by a Bible preacher. And he approached the preacher and he said, I finally worked out, he said, why people like Christmas. And the preacher said, really, tell me. And he said, here's my answer. A baby threatens no one. So the whole thing is a happy event means nothing at all. And Matthew 2 will leave us dumbfounded at that statement. And at the, heart, at the heart of the Christmas story in Matthew's Gospel is a baby who poses such a threat to the most powerful man around that he kills the whole village full of other babies in order to try to get rid of them. And at the heart of the Christmas story in Luke 2 is a baby who, if only the Roman Emperor knew it, will be the Lord of the whole world. Within a generation, his followers will be persecuted by the empire as a danger to good order. Whatever you say about Jesus, from his birth onwards, people and the powers and principalities in dark places here saw him as a threat. Because he upsets their power games. And Jesus suffers the usual fate of people who do that. In fact, here in Matthew 2, you start to see the shadow of the cross, don't you? That falls over the story from this moment on. Revelation pictures a woman giving birth and the dragon ready to devour her. that child. Jesus is born with a price on his head. Plots are hatched. Angels have to warn Joseph. They only just escaped from Bethlehem in time, right? Herod the Great, who thought nothing of, of killing members of his own family, even, even his own beloved wife, when he suspected them of scheming against them. Historically, he gave orders when dying that the leading citizens of Jericho should be slaughtered so that people would be weeping at his funeral. So he'd have some people sad, even though it weren't sad for him. This Herod, that wouldn't bat an eyelid at the thought of killing lots of little babies in case one of them should be regarded as a royal pretender. This Herod, as his, as his power had increased, his paranoia increased. Not an unfamiliar progression, as you see this happen in dictators around the world. And you have this gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. Born in that time. Born in a land in a time of trouble and tension and violence and fear. No peaceful Christmas scenes, folks, in this story. Before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee in Egypt with a price on his head. 
At the same time in this passage and several other, Matthew insists that we see in Jesus even when things that their darkness here are as their darkness. Fulfillment of Scripture. This is how Israel's Redeemer was to appear. This is how God would set, set about bringing liberation. If he's to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where that pain is as well. And that's what this chapter is about. And we've lived immersed here as people in a world of thousands of years, immersed in, 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 in a thousand years of the squeezing of death and sin like a boa constrictor around our chest. The tears of the weeping from myriads of people gone before us into our day to day and in the future. People suffering from the effects of death and sin fill the clouds, the tears fill the rivers, the tears fill the oceans of this planet. And this passage in Jeremiah is all about God's renewal of his covenant. That Matthew quotes. Bringing Israel from exile at last. Though Israel must weep and Rachel can't be comforted, God tells her to be comforted. Rescue is on the way. And Matthew here, in the outset of his book here, is hinting that Jesus is bringing deliverance even when everything seems bleak and hopeless. And Jesus, not despite the frantic and tragic events that have happened around his birth, but because of them, God is providing the salvation and rescue that Israel longed for. And through that is justice for the world. You haven't heard the last of the house of Herod. But the young child born to be the true king of the Jews has been introduced as the bearer of God's salvation. The bearer of God's presence. And Matthew will then invite us to watch it here God's exodus from bondage. You see, the truth of the good news is that we, like Herod, we're, we're co-conspirators together. We're not innocent. We're co-conspirators of hating the Son of God. We would have crucified the Son as well. Because men love darkness because the light exposes the darkness. So we go to the corners. We go to the darkness. We've lived in rebellion against Him as the true King. We want our own way. We, we, we want him pushed out of our picture, our form, as safe Jesus into our own version. And we've fallen and fall far short of loving God, glorifying him. Our natural hearts don't want to obey God and all his commands and how we love him and love others. We want to live for ourselves. We deceive ourselves that we're too busy for him and others to be a priority and set ourselves up really as the God on our throne like Herod. Threatened by Jesus. What he has set before our eyes here. The one who has been rebelled against to be born of a virgin, to fulfill the law, live in obedience, to die or deserve death in our place, and arise again as a saving king. And by turning away from ourselves and turning to Him, there is the only salvation under heaven whereby we are able to be saved. There's salvation in Him, an eternal life of God. And this good news is so powerful and so feared by the forces of evil that they will do anything to snuff it out and influence you not to believe. 
But it's the only way, and it is the only hope to be delivered from the evil that inhabits our hearts. It's true to come to Christ and be saved. And that's true, Christian. Continue growing in Christ. Give more and more of ourselves to Him. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in detail. There is just a figurehead. Abuse, bruises, death, fracture. The Son of God was spared. But 30 years later, 33 years later, he would not be spared to go to the cross to make this true for you. And so yes, rejoice in the festivities of Christmas because the babe with a bounty on his head is God with us. Salvation is ultimately a deliverance from all of this to eternal life with God. Rest with the Savior who comes certain and surely in the flesh to conquer evil in the world and in your own heart. A couple years ago we had a lady speak at the ladies' Christmas party named Linda Hansel. And she's had a very difficult story here. But a story of how God has helped her through some extremely hard circumstances. And she wrote a post the other day that my wife put up that I read. She said, I've been through deep, dark waters and received strength and help when fellow Christians came alongside and reminded me of what I already knew. And so, my fellow believer, I'm here to remind you of what we already know. You are surrounded by the presence of Almighty God. He is not only in you, but He is also beside you, in front of you and behind you. His left hand is goodness, and His right hand is mercy. He is following you around both spiritually and physically, with his hands on your shoulders. You are experiencing a fiery trial, but you are not alone in the flames. The fourth man is walking with you. I have experienced the flames of trial and expressed to someone at the time that the heat was unbelievable. It felt like my very soul was on fire. Oh, how we would love to be taken out of the fire. We don't want to stay there because it is so very uncomfortable. The heat is suffocating, but God never promised to take us out right away. Instead, he promised to take us through. He's holding your hand now and will not let go. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. It's hard to be strong during these long trials, isn't it? It's hard to keep pushing your mind, think on the Lord, and concentrate on His goodness. Humanity makes it easy to lose focus. Don't kick yourself for becoming discouraged or for momentarily losing hope. Don't kick yourself for the tears or sighs. There is a battle and it's for your mind. Lean hard into Jesus and let yourself cry in His arms. Tears don't mean you've lost your faith. Instead it means that you're human and you carry your faith in a human body that gets tired and struggles with the unbelievable heat of the flame. Be strong and of good courage. As repeated again and again in the Bible. God knew that we would be weak without Him, but that we would find the strength we needed in Him. Yet, He knew that we needed to be reminded again and again to be strong. Deuteronomy 31.8 And the Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. 
He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Fear in that verse means terrified. And dismayed means discouraged. Sometimes it's easy to become discouraged. We're tired not only in body, but also in spirit. And our emotions are wrung out until we feel hollow. God knew that would happen because He made us. So He kept repeating it. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. You don't get our courage from looking at our circumstances. Instead, we get our courage from concentrating on what we know about God. He always was and always will be. He's all-powerful and there's nothing too hard for Him. He's all-knowing and knew us before we were ever formed in our mother's womb. And in all of that, He loves us. The only thing you have to do right now is focus on the Lord. You don't have to come up with some important life lesson or a devotional to share next week. Whatever God wants you to learn, He'll show you clearly in the perfect time. In the meantime, you're only required to be still and know that He is God. Do you remember what Jesus said to King? He said, if you're weary and loaded down with burdens, come to Him. For He's gentle and lowly and will give you rest. He's perfectly God and perfectly man. There's, there's no one like Him. About 1,500 years ago, there was a theologian named Gregory of Pisanias. In describing the ironies of Jesus as human and God, he said this, He hungered, but He fed thousands. He was weary, but He is the rest of all them that are weary. He was heavy with sleep, but He walked lightly over the sea. He prays, but He hears prayer. He weeps, but He causes tears to cease. He asks where Lazarus was laid, for He was man, but He raises Lazarus, for He was God. He is sold and very cheap, and very cheap, for it is only thirty pieces of silver, but it redeems the world. As a sheep, he's led to the slaughter, but he's the shepherd of Israel, and now the whole world also. As a lamb, he is silent, yet he is the word. He is wounded, but he healeth every disease. He dies, but he gives life. We've seen the hope of Christ. Push back the darkness this year. What a joy. See the kindness and grace and mercy of God as Rebecca and Brooke this early summer declared Jesus as their saving king. He's broken the powers of darkness on their lives and by his grace they're going to walk with him as new creatures. I saw brothers and sisters of Christ give more and more of their lives to the Lord. I watched some brothers open their minds to scripture truth instead of giving in to internet's wicked temptations. We saw a few teens who asked, how can we use our gifts to serve the Lord? And wanted to train to do children's ministry. And one of our own, Ethan, saw answered prayer to put together a dream he had for years. To train a team from our own church to go up to the Allagash in nowhere land and minister I saw fathers take steps of Christian leadership in their families' lives and lead their family in humility and grace. I saw mothers not lash out in anger or take out frustration and take frustrations to the Lord and turn them over to Him and watch Him begin the work. We saw babies born this year, born in the Christian families, to be nurtured in the admonition of the Lord. 
I watched people who had frustrations not strike out, but gently try to understand other people's perspectives and listen carefully in grace. I noticed a growing heart for our community and our church. And uh, I'm not just going to expect somebody else to do it, but many in the body stepping up and taking ownership of various outreaches. I watch people take their personal preferences about Halloween. See how loving our community and serving and open up doors they might not have dreamed about and help gain a larger perspective. I saw people think of themselves less and break free from the dark bondage of self and pride and saw Christ increase his power in their lives. We cried together this year. We rejoiced together. We sang and prayed together. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and we saw him continue to do that in many ways. Rachel may be weeping for her children, but the Christ child has come. The eternal Son of God has left a footprint on the skull of the serpent on Calvary in the tomb. And he's coming soon. God is with us. That affliction will be outweighed by the glory he's going to reveal in us one day. <laughs> it's hard to understand here on this but Emmanuel is for sufferers. Friday, December 25th, 1863. Two years after losing his wife. Longfellow, he's 57. He's now a widowed father of six children. The oldest of which had been nearly paralyzed by that bullet in the Civil War as this country fought a war against itself. He's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he hears the Christmas bells from the churches ringing. He hears the singing of peace on earth echoing through carols in the streets. But it doesn't seem to jive with the injustice in the world and violence. It seems to knock the truthfulness of, is this just an optimistic outlook, just being positive? So he sat down and he scratched out a poem entitled Christmas Bells. Trying to capture this dissonance in his own heart here in the world he observed around him that Christmas Day. And in this poem, there's a theme of listening. Like Matthew wanted us to listen. That goes to the poem. Even in the midst of bleak despair, there's a settledness of true, certain, confident hope that God is alive and He will prevail. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. There are old, familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent. And made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men.
Emmanuel is for sufferers. He's conquered riches. We've 